Uh, Dick Lucas, the um, rector of St. Helen's Bishopsgate for almost 40 years, once told of a church that he visited as a guest preacher. As he approached the pulpit to speak, he noticed a little plaque that was planted on the pulpit. It quoted from our gospel reading this morning, verse 21. It said simply, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. You see, the folk of that church wanted to make clear to any visiting preacher who came to that pulpit that the only purpose of preaching, the only purpose was to preach Jesus, that people might see him more clearly. So as we look at this passage this morning from John's Gospel, let us pray that we too might see Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, speak to us through your word this morning. Open our hearts and minds to what you would say to us. As the song goes, we want to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly day by day. Amen. So we're continuing our short series on eternal life. And last week, if you were here, you'll remember we began by looking at the gift of eternal life. We heard the words from Jesus in John chapter 17, where he said this, Now this is eternal life, that they, that means us, the people, you, me, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, to know God and his son Jesus is to receive the free gift of eternal life. Is that not a wonderful truth? But as the French Renaissance philosopher Michel de Montaigne once said, there is no more expensive thing than a free gift. You see, if we receive a free gift, then it has to be purchased by someone. We've had our free COVID jabs. Free. We had until recently our free COVID uh, tests. But it was the government who paid the original cost. There is always a cost that needs to be paid. And so the question this morning is, what is the cost of eternal life? Who has paid the price for this free gift offered to us? Before we get on to that important question, I want to mention a very nasty illness. You may have heard of it. It's called STQS, or Silly Tourist Question Syndrome. It is the ability of tourists, wherever they might be, to ask the dumbest of questions. You've probably heard of the tourist who, when flying over Windsor Castle uh, from Heathrow, asked why on earth they'd built the castle under a flight path. There there was a a late titter over there. Greg only caught it a bit late. Another tourist visited uh, Westminster Abbey and asked if this is where the Queen had had her coronary. English Heritage once did a survey of the stupidest questions asked by visitors. This is true. And the best was apparently when a tourist visited Osborne House, which you may know on the Isle of Wight was the home of Queen Victoria. Apparently, he asked if this was where Sharon and Ozzy Osborne lived. The tourist went home most disappointed by the answer. 
Now, when it comes to stupid tourist question syndrome, even I have had my moments. My usual uh, foot-in-mouth embarrassment when I'm traveling is when I stay at a Scottish B&B, because I always, always forget and ask for the full English breakfast. I do sometimes wonder what they put in it in the kitchen. But 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, there were some Greek tourists who actually asked a very sensible question. And we, we read about it in our passage today. Do turn to it. It's on the back of our sheets. Now, these Greek tourists, or maybe they were just Greek-speaking, were probably not Jews, but they were interested in Judaism. They were what is known as truth-seekers or God-fearers. And they were sufficiently interested in Judaism to turn up in Jerusalem for the Passover. And once they were there, they didn't waste their time asking silly tourist questions. Oh no, they knew exactly what they wanted to do. So they found someone with a Greek name, Philip. They thought probably he might be able to help them. And so they asked him, verse 21 of our passage, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, before I go any further, it's an important question. What does it mean to see Jesus? Because we have a choice, don't we? We can see Jesus as the world wants to see him, or we can see Jesus as he himself would have us see him. If we choose the former, if we choose the world's way of looking at Jesus, we will get a very different picture. To the Muslims, At Chesham Mosque, Jesus is just another prophet. To others, he's a teacher or a rabbi or a miracle worker, maybe just a good man. Philip Pullman has written a novel entitled The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, which tells you all you need to know about how Philip Pullman sees Jesus. To Mahatma Gandhi, he was as, quote, as much God as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad or Zoroaster. So you see, the world's perception of Jesus takes many different forms. But someone once said this, we will only follow Jesus as we should if we see him as he is. We will only follow Jesus as we should if we see him as he is. And John's gospel is a great gospel to go to to understand how Jesus saw himself. Because, of course, John's gospel is where we have the the, the seven great I am statements. Um, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, and so on. And our passage this morning also gives a wonderful insight into how Jesus saw himself and how, indeed, he would be glorified. Now, we don't actually know if Jesus saw these Greek Uh, tourists, whether he agreed to meet them. The passage doesn't say, but what we do know is what Jesus said in reply to them. And it begins in verses 23 to 24. Look, he says this, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, in a way, this is like another I am statement. It's almost the eighth 
I am statement. And it's a big one because, in effect, Jesus is saying, my dear Greek friends, welcome to Jerusalem. You want to see me? Well, you soon will. Because my hour of glory has come. Up until this point, he said, my hour has not come. But now here in John chapter 12, he says, my hour has come. I am the seed that must die. For there to be many seeds, for there to be fruitfulness, for there to be life. For there to be eternal life, indeed. And if the Greeks and the disciples don't quite get it, as as often they don't when Jesus says these things, he makes it clearer later on in verses 32 and 33. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus responds to the request to see him by pointing his audience, by pointing the people around him away from what he has done, from the healing of Lazarus that we heard in our passage had brought people to follow Jesus, from that and all the other miracles, and by pointing them in the direction of something that was going to happen in the near future. Something glorious. A moment when Jesus would be glorified. But it wasn't the moment of glory that people were expecting. Remember, these were the very people who had shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the king of Israel when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, verse 13 of our, of our reading. They were expecting their Messiah to be a king. But no, Jesus' moment of glory would be something very different. It would be his humiliating and painful death on a cross. Jesus' glory would be revealed when the grain of wheat fell to the ground. And died, verse 24, when Jesus would be lifted up from the earth, as he says in verse 32. So we see at once from the words of Jesus himself who it was who paid for this gift, this free gift of eternal life. The cost was paid by Jesus on the cross of Calvary. That was the moment of Jesus' glorification. That was the moment when eternal life was purchased for us by the blood of Christ. When he bore the penalty for our sins, the penalty that we should have borne for ourselves. But as we reflect on this cross of Jesus, as we prepare to enter into Holy Week, I want to highlight three important aspects of Jesus' words here in, in John chapter 12. The first is this, that Jesus' death was necessary. Note that Jesus says in verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, there had to be a death for there to be growth. There had to be a death for there to be fruitfulness, for there to be life. There is and was no other way of bridging the gap between God and humankind. The great uh, 19th century Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, put it like this. If Christ had not gone to the cross and suffered in our stead, the just for the unjust, there would not have been a spark of hope for us. There would have been a mighty gulf between ourselves and God, which no man ever could have passed. In other words, there was 
no alternative. The cost of eternal life had to be paid. The second point I want to bring out this morning is this. Jesus' death is for everyone. The free gift of eternal life that Jesus paid for with his own life is available to all who would believe. And again, it's in our passage today. Just look at verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The important word here is anyone. Anyone who truly believes, whatever they have done, wherever they come from, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, anyone can receive this free gift of eternal life through the blood of Jesus. But the cross of Calvary still requires a response from us. It's like those embossed party invitations that you sometimes see on people's mantelpieces. Maybe you've got some on yours. Are they there for show? Or are they there because you've accepted them? An invitation is meaningless unless we accept the invitation, unless we open it and respond to it. And so it is with the free gift of eternal life that Jesus offers to us. We need to accept this gift, for only then can we enjoy it. But the invitation is sent out to everyone. Jesus' death is for everyone. My third and final point is that Jesus' death is our example. When we talk about the cost of eternal life, then of course the cost was ultimately paid in full, in blood, by Jesus on the cross. That's why this cross is so central to us as Christians. That's why it's something we will be remembering in a few moments when we come to Holy Communion, something we will be marking this coming Good Friday and do please come if you're, if you're around to our Good Friday meditation between midday and three o'clock on Good Friday. But Jesus makes clear here in John chapter 12 that there is a cost for us too. We are called to hate our lives in this world, verse 25. Not in a literal sense, of course, but by putting God and his will first in our lives, in everything we do. It's about our priorities. Is our priority, our three score years and ten in this world, or our eternal life with God in heaven? What is our priority? It's a question that we must have an answer to. And then in verse 26, Jesus says, whoever serves me must follow me. You see, the cost for us of following Jesus is a life of service. We are servants to him and to our brothers and sisters, We need to put him first in everything we do and not lead self-centered, worldly lives. One of the amazing things about Jesus' I am statements here in John's Gospel is that while they primarily say something about Jesus, that's why they're there, they also tell us something about ourselves. John Piper, when he comments on this passage, he says, A truth about Jesus becomes a truth about ourselves. Jesus' self-revelation is almost always a confrontation. When Jesus says, John chapter 6, I am the bread of life, he is challenging us. Where will you look for nourishment? In earthly things 
or spiritual things. When Jesus says, chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's challenging us. Which way are you going to choose? And so it is here in John chapter 12. When Jesus says that a grain of wheat needs to die before it can be fruitful, he is saying that primarily about himself, about his future death on the cross. But he's also challenging us. What is it that needs to die in us before we can be truly fruitful? And this is a question that we can look at on two levels. In one sense, it's our whole self that needs to die. As Paul puts it to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So in one sense, we are already dead and living in Christ. But in another sense, is there some aspect of our lives some stronghold, something we're clinging to, some blockage that is stopping us from being fruitful for Christ. As I close, a, a, a personal story, and I realize I shared a personal story a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to make a habit of this in my sermons. But I used to work, as some of you know, in city investment banking, And for 15 years in my time in the city, I grew slowly and ever more gradually frustrated at the venality and the worldliness of the of city life and the financial sector. I felt that God was calling me away into some kind of Christian ministry where I could be fruitful for the kingdom. But I lacked the courage to make the leap, to let go of that salary and the and the bonuses which I felt that I needed to look after my family. But then God challenged me with this very verse. Verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. God challenged me through this verse and made me realize that something had to die in me first before I could be truly fruitful for him. To be used by him. At that time, my youngest daughter, Ellie, had fallen very ill with chronic fatigue syndrome. She was bedridden for 18 months. And when the bank that I worked for, when I went to them and asked if I could take some unpaid leave to care for her, they said no, because they wanted me to continue to work on the deals. I realized that I could no longer stay in that place. And so I resigned in faith, with no job to go to, and I would also be losing the the healthcare that that my daughter was getting. One of my strongholds, my city career, in which I had vested so much, had been put to death, and I was now in God's hands. Yet, within a few weeks of my resignation, in faith, not only was I offered the chance to become a chief executive of a Christian charity, which I accepted, and I did that for seven years, but my daughter was miraculously healed of her illness. And that's why this verse means so much to me, because it changed my life. So to finish, an encouragement, an invitation, and a challenge. First, the encouragement. Let's give thanks for this gift of eternal life that was purchased for us by the blood of Christ. And in fact, that's what we will be doing in a few moments at Holy Communion. Second, the invitation. Christ's death is for everyone who believes. So let us share that invitation with those who have not yet received it. 
or not yet opened it, or not yet responded to it. And if you're in church in here this morning or watching online and you have not yet accepted this invitation, sitting on your mantelpiece, then it's not too late. Speak to us. We'd love to tell you more. And thirdly and finally, the challenge. As we have seen in the life of Christ, there needed to be death for there to be fruitfulness and life. We remember that death in a moment and especially this coming Good Friday. But we're called to imitate Christ. So what is it in our lives that needs to die, that we need to jettison? What stronghold do we need to get rid of, let go of, before we can be truly fruitful for God? What are we clinging on to that God wants us to let go of? It may not be as dramatic as as my story, but perhaps there is something. May God, by his Holy Spirit, help us to see what it might be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus who paid the ultimate price that we might have eternal life. We pray, Lord, that we would give thanks day by day for that cost being paid on the cross of Calvary. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to share the good news with all whom we meet. And we pray, Lord, that you would challenge us by your spirit. What is it in our own lives that needs to die that we might be truly fruitful for you and your kingdom? And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.